You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. The province is stepping in to take control of Surrey's transition from the RCMP to a municipal police force. While they're greenlighting the idea, they say it will take substantial work by a joint provincial and municipal transition team headed up by former Attorney General Wally Opal. Catherine Urquhart has more on what this does to the timeline and potential cost. It's now moving forward, a City of Surrey Police Department. Uh, so today I've given Surrey the green light to move a step forward to establish a municipal police department. But the transition team will now be controlled by the province, not Surrey. It will include staff from the City of Surrey, the province and experts. The chair, Wally Opal. We're going to get started on it almost immediately because we know there's some urgency in it. Uh, but we want to make sure, though, that uh, whatever we've done is done properly, according to the law, and with all due deliberation. Critics of Surrey's transition report pleased about the province's oversight and hopeful there will be more transparency. This is going to truly expose how secretive the process was to date. It will show that the mayor held everything tightly. And so now the citizens will get to see what was in the report in a, in a more transparent fashion. We need to be engaging the residents of Surrey. We've not been doing that and we need to change that. And I'm really hoping with the task force that Mr. Opal is going to be setting up that that will be a key component of it. As for criticism that he hasn't been transparent... Well, I don't agree with that comment. Um, the report that was done um, for us by, um, by the Vancouver Police Department, um, Dr. Griffiths, um, and our staff in the city, um, once um, it was done and completed and given to the province, it was, was completely, its entirety was released to the public. BC Solicitor General clear that there's still a lot of work needed on the transition. The, the committee will take the time that it requires uh, to properly. Uh, we've asked them to work expeditiously and um, I'm, that's, uh, that's my expectation. The deadline they're working towards? That Surrey's new police force be operational by April 2021. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the decision. Keith, put this into context for us. Why is it significant that the province is now getting involved directly? Yeah, Mike Farnworth has made it very clear for some time that uh, he thought there's a lot more work needs to be done here. And the government's obviously made the decision that the Surrey Municipal Council on its own is not equipped to actually perform out perform all the due diligence that's required here. And Farnworth, again, emphasizing today how much more work needs to be done. J uh, Doug McCallum talks about an April 2021-22 uh, uh, deadline. That is not going to be met, I think, if you look at Farnworth's words here. He's emphasizing all the things that still are required. So this was the province basically taking control of a process and realizing it couldn't say no to Surrey, but if they were going to move down this path, the province, the senior government here, had to be in control and have their people at the table, and that's exactly what rolled out today. The timeline, though, not guaranteed. I'd be surprised if Mr. McCallum is going to hit his mark, as things will take a lot longer than that. All right, thanks for that. Keith Baldry in Victoria. To a developing situation in the valley now where a large police operation involving the emergency response team is underway. It's unfolding northwest of Highway 9 and Yale Road near Agassiz. RCMP are releasing very few details at this time except to say that there is no danger or threat to the public. 
The grandfather of a 14-year-old boy who died of a drug overdose at a Langley skate park says he does not blame police. This comes after the Independent Investigations Office revealed it's looking at what role, if any, the action or inaction of the officers who attended the scene may have played in Carson Cremeni's death. Jill Bennett has more from Cremeni's grandfather, including who he does blame. And a warning, you may find some of the images in this story disturbing. He just couldn't make it. I think he collapsed right there. This is the last place Daryl Cremeni saw his 14-year-old grandson Carson alive. Cremeni came to this park looking for him on August 7th after his dad called to say Carson hadn't come home. I got here and Carson was lying up against the fence on his back. He was breathing. He had no shoes. He had no socks. The police were doing the best they could. But the actions of the RCMP are now the focus of an investigation by the Independent Investigations Office of BC. It's looking into how officers responded to the first 911 call made that night at 8 p.m. <laughs> That call was made by someone who saw this video posted on social media. It shows Carson acting strangely while being given drugs, with a large crowd watching, some recording it, no one doing anything to help. The IIO has confirmed two officers attended the location to conduct a welfare check, but could not locate the youth. If the police had showed up and found him at 8 o'clock, perhaps they could have saved him, perhaps. But it wasn't the police who killed him. Carson. Cremeni says two more 911 calls were made that night, but he blames the people who did nothing for Carson's death. As for who is criminally responsible, this lawyer says it's not the RCMP. The issues at play here is, are how did he get the drugs? Who supplied the drugs? Because those are the people that are criminally responsible. The police have done nothing wrong here. Cremeni says he's not focused on the criminal investigation, but hopes if any good comes from it, it's that this doesn't happen to anyone else. He was a joy, you know. He's my only grandchild. Jill Bennett, Global News. A North Vancouver music teacher has been arrested in connection with a series of allegations of sexual misconduct involving underage girls in Coquitlam. Police say Lamar Victor Alviar has been teaching music out of a North Vancouver business called LA Music Studio. Investigators believe he's had inappropriate contact with young people around Metro Vancouver and they're releasing his photo urging any potential victims and witnesses to come forward. The Oak Bay father accused of killing his two young daughters on Christmas morning in 2017 back on the witness stand for a second day today. Andrew Berry pleading not guilty to the charges against him and painting a very different picture of the timeline of that day than prosecutors are. Romina Dea was in court and has more on how Berry remembers his final moments with the girls. What happened Christmas Day 2017? Crown's theory, Andrew Berry tried to commit suicide after killing his children around 8 o'clock in the morning when a key witness said she heard banging and crashing coming from Berry's apartment. The accused says he didn't do it, he was attacked. Aubrey and Chloe woke up that morning excited. They opened their stockings. A fresh blanket of snow had fallen, so Barry said he took the girls tobogganing twice. The second time, Barry told the jury they returned around 3, 3.30 in the afternoon when he says he was attacked. Gesturing at his throat, Barry told the jury 
I was tackled onto the bed. My chins reefed up. I was stabbed in the throat. The next thing I know when I come to, I go into Chloe's bedroom and I fell down in the doorway and lose consciousness. I woke up, I crawl over to Chloe's bed. I pull myself up onto my knees. I reach out and touched Chloe and she's dead. Barry said crying on the stand, just blood everywhere. And I think Aubrey at that point and I get up and go to my room again. She's not there. I move over to the kitchen. My recollection is me grabbing a knife and being thrown to the floor and getting stabbed while I'm trying to get back up again. The next thing Barry remembers is waking up in the bathtub with the police standing over him. Barry said the person who attacked him had dark skin and dark hair, not the Chinese loan sharks he described the other day, who he said he owed $25,000 to. Crown will get a chance to cross-examine Barry on his version of events on Friday. Romina Dea, Global News. Police are appealing for witnesses and information in a 2017 homicide in Surrey. Walter Wally Rogers was stabbed to death on 144th Street near 88th Avenue. No arrests or charges have been made. The suspects left the area in the victim's green Dodge Caravan, traveling in tandem with a silver sedan. The caravan was later recovered by police. Two men have been identified as persons of interest and are believed to have vital information about those responsible for Wally's death. The first man, described as Caucasian, slim build, wearing a dark ball cap with a white logo. The second man, also Caucasian, a medium build, bald, wearing a striped collared t-shirt. While police say Wally was involved in the drug trade, a close friend of his spoke out today saying while Wally wasn't perfect, his murder was still senseless. Wally was over 60 years old and was in no way threatening. The man could barely walk. It pains me whenever I think of how Wally's life ended, regardless of the wrongs we, need, we committed in our life. No one deserves that. We're making the appeal, particularly at this time, because it's come to our attention that there are these few individuals that really have crucial information about what happened, that have information about those responsible for the stabbing, and perhaps they weren't in a position to come forward two years ago, a few months ago. But now we've learned that they're in a better position. A group of homeowners whose properties became worthless due to sinkholes are now launching a lawsuit. You may remember problems plaguing the Sea Watch neighborhood on the Sunshine Coast. Residents ordered to evacuate last February due to the risk of landslides. They've not been allowed back since. Now a dozen homeowners are suing the district and the province, claiming both knew of the hazard when they approved that development. Now to a story that will make you angry if you're an ICBC customer. Global News has an exclusive look at a fraud crackdown by ICBC. Video showing people claiming to be injured but found doing some extraordinary things. Richard Zussman explains how they were caught and why their dishonesty has us all paying the price. It's a busy day on Vancouver's roads back in the summer of 2016. This bus cut off by a car and rear-ending the vehicle in front. At least 20 passengers get off the bus. And this woman, you can see her highlighted, files an injury claim with ICBC, claiming lost wages from her job as a fitness instructor and other costs. She had provided us some receipts for, for things like physiotherapy or massage therapy, and in good faith, 
we repaid her and reimbursed her for those amounts. But the story seemed off to an ICBC adjuster. On top of that, notes from physio that the treatment was for a pre-existing injury. Then there was this. This individual had actually successfully completed a half marathon 14 hours after the crash. The woman has since been charged for providing false information, ordered to pay back everything ICBC paid her, plus a $2,250 fine. But on the rare occasion, we do see some people who would try and see this as an opportunity to commit insurance fraud. ICBC estimates fraud costs the company $600 million a year. That works out to about $100 for every single ICBC policyholder. The vast majority of our 3 million plus customers are honest. And when we see fraudulent things like this happen, um, we try our best to minimize uh, our losses. The woman on the bus isn't the only case ICBC has recently solved. Watch this one. A man traveling on Ladner Trunk Road in Delta clearly rear-ends the driver in front and flees. And as you can see, he stops, he's stunned. Uh, you hear him note his displeasure and then you see him to, you, see, you watch him proceed and drive away. ICBC ultimately getting the dash cam video from the convicted fraudster after seeing holes in his claim. He paid up nearly $4,000 in restitution and a $2,500 fine. ICBC wanting to get the message out. If you cheat the system, they're going to do everything they can to catch you. Richard Zussman, Global News. Right now, though, there is very little rest these days for Squamish Search and Rescue. Today, volunteers were called out to the Stawamas Chief to assist an injured climber. The woman reportedly fell about 20 feet. The extent of her injuries is not known. Crews say August has been an extra busy month, averaging one call out per day. Meantime, a boost for these guys, the search and rescue capabilities of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Federal Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan announcing today two more cormorant search and rescue helicopters will be purchased and the rest of the 14 helicopters in the fleet will be upgraded. According to the Department of National Defense, the investment is valued at up to $1.39 billion. Well, they've only been around for a few years, but the popularity of drones has really soared. And while they can provide some spectacular aerial footage, they can also be a safety risk around airports. Jordan Armstrong explains how one BC company has partnered in the development of new technology that can spot the threat from several kilometers away. In this box, the size of a suitcase, is a device that can detect threats from above. We believe it is a game changer. BC-based Indro Robotics has partnered in the development of a drone detection system. The company says the device dubbed Aeroscope can spot drones as far as 25 kilometers away and as high as 5,000 feet. It identifies the operator and then some scenarios it can identify literally the serial number of the of the operational control so that we know who the operator is aeroscope works by scanning for specific radio signals emitted by drones and their remote controls the technology was put to use at the abbotsford air show this year to protect aircraft crew and spectators from the potential of a mid-air collision how many drones did it see but it was north of 10. The test was supervised by Abbotsford police, who were impressed. In an email, the department says the technology appeared to work well, detecting numerous drones, allowing officers to pass along the information to the airport control tower. It's got 
oodles of potential. Not just for airports, prisons could benefit as a measure to deter drug drops. And the BC Wildfire Service, which is sometimes forced to ground firefighting aircraft when unauthorized drones hog the same airspace. What does it cost? The retail version of it would range somewhere between thirty and $50,000 Canadian. What's next? The technology to actually take control of a drone and force it down already exists. They just don't have permission to do that in Canada yet. We're working with Transport Canada and with the FAA on, you know, next steps. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. More now on the raid by Canada Border Service agents at Hastings Racecourse earlier this week. That's right. Tonight there's growing concern that the province's gaming watchdog was actually investigating one of its own when more than two dozen foreign workers were hauled off in handcuffs. As Sarah McDonald reports, worker representatives say their only crime was trusting someone who should have been protecting them. They lived and worked in these quarters on the grounds of Vancouver's Hastings Racecourse until the early hours of Monday morning when more than two dozen migrant workers left in handcuffs in a raid conducted by Canada Border Services. Uh, most definitely there's more to this story. The Ministry of the Attorney General confirming Thursday that raid stemmed from an ongoing investigation into a government employee on the heels of evidence revealed at an immigration hearing for one of those foreign workers. A bombshell allegation involving one of the inspectors tasked with stopping any wrongdoing within the province's gaming industry. This regulatory body called the Gaming Policy and Enforcement Branch, or GPEB. The only offense that they've committed was working without a work permit, which they thought they were all right doing given that they got the license from the GPEB official. Grooming licenses like this one typically cost only $30, but some migrant workers told members of the racing community and legal counsel they allegedly forked over upwards of $1,000 each for one to a government inspector. They believed this granted them access to work both on the track and in the country. It's really unfortunate that somebody in a position of trust and authority um, would deceive people and take their money and tell them that they would be allowed to work here uh, with you know, this card when in fact they weren't. None of the allegations have been proven in court, but we do know GPEB was aware of a complaint involving one of its own as early as October of 2018. The province confirming that internal investigation led to the CBSA's involvement. If a government official is saying that all you'll need is this license and you can legally work, um, you, you know, are more likely than not to believe them. If proven in court, the allegation could have an explosive ripple effect well beyond the racetrack. GPEB regulates the province's entire gaming industry, including its lotteries and casinos, some of which recently found to be at the heart of the province's money laundering scandal. GPEB and Attorney General David Eby, who's in charge of it, not responding to multiple requests for interviews. The Solicitor General questioned Thursday, but still not saying much. Of course, you're always concerned about when you hear uh, uh, allegations uh, and these kinds of stories. But as I said, it's under investigation, and I'd like to uh, uh, have more information and, and know where the investigation is uh, before I make a comment. The Ministry of the Attorney General confirming that provincial employee is now under investigation by Canada Border Services and no longer has access to any government offices or systems, as the provincial gambling watchdog itself now finds itself under the microscope. Sarah McDonald. Global News. We are getting a devastating snapshot of the current state of Pacific salmon tonight. Federal fisheries officials confirm significant declines in a number of stocks. 
Now a First Nations chief is so concerned about the crisis, she's calling on the government to declare a state of emergency. Linda Ellsworth reports. Fisheries biologists recently completed their report on the state of Pacific salmon. The news, as was expected, is not good. 2019 has been a particularly difficult and year for wild salmon. Fraser sockeye returns this year look to be very low, relative even to, to recent norms, and maybe one of the worst years on record. Not helping matters, the massive big bar landslide on the Fraser River in BC's interior that made a narrow section of the canyon impassable for migrating salmon. Over the last two months, efforts to help salmon over the barrier have included rock removal, fish ladders and seining. About 270,000 salmon have been recorded in the river below the barrier and we have moved about 26,000 of those upstream by the tank and helicopter system. Today, the fisheries minister said that in addition, a road is being constructed so fish can also be transported by land. But some members of the First Nations community say it's not enough. We have declared a state of emergency in regard to the rock slide at the Fraser River, and it's being ignored. For Indigenous people who live above the slide site, who've depended on salmon for thousands of years, there are fears that their way of life is being threatened. Their wish is that more resources are dedicated to this issue right away. Chief Fred Robbins' community is usually busy drawing over a thousand salmon by now. Normally you come driving into my community, you can see where the, where the dry racks are because there's, there's puffs of smoke everywhere in the community. Now, uh, when you're driving into the community, there are no puffs of smoke. We have been focusing on it as a crisis. We have spared no expense. And if there are additional things we need to do, we've always said we are quite willing to do those. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Well, the return of the sun today means it's a perfect evening to take in the PE. That's right. And that's where meteorologist Christy Gordon is again tonight with a very special guest and one of the great shows down there this year, Christy. That's right. This is Shane Adams. He's the captain and owner of Knights of Valor. Uh, being a knight is a child, a dream of yours. You put on this show all around North America. You have two TV shows. What does it feel like to bring this to audiences all around? Do you know what? I just have to explain to everybody. Growing up, I had a childhood dream. Yes, it was to be a knight. But it came from a poem. Hold fast to your dreams, for if dreams fade, the earth would be nothing but an endless maze. And here I am, living my childhood dream, which has led to other people all over the world living that same dream to be a knight in shining armor. Tell us what people can expect from your show. Full contact jousting. So what we do is not choreographed. It's not theater. There are no stunt falls. What you see out there is 100% real. Full contact jousting. Today, of course, is a modern-day sport entertainment. Jousting it is it. But it is a show for all family uh, members Absolutely. of all ages. Uh, thank you so much, Shane. We're going to be watching these uh, horses. They're getting ready. We're going to see the uh, actual knights mount the horses a little bit later. Thanks for being with us, Thanks. and good luck in the show. The show starts at 7, three times a day here at the PE. Back to you guys. See everybody at the PE. Bye-bye. <laughs> Huzzah! Thank you. Thanks very I much. Say that occasionally. Arbor will be a bit complicated. <laughs> I think so.
The blame game is being waged over devastating fires that are raging right now in the Amazon rainforest. Brazil's National Institute for Space Research, which monitors wildfires, says there have been nearly 75,000 fires across the country this year, an 84% increase compared to the same period last year. Brazil's president is blaming non-governmental organizations for setting the fires in retaliation for losing state funds. He didn't provide any actual evidence to back up those claims, though. In turn, climate activists point to the government's dismantling of many of the rainforest protections and insist farmers clearing land are responsible for the uptick in fires. The rainforest has been dubbed the lungs of the planet because it generates more than 20 percent of the Earth's oxygen. With still no word on when the grounded Boeing 737 MAX 8 planes will be allowed to fly again, there's high demand for aircraft from other airlines and charter aviation companies, including here in Canada, to make up the shortfall. Nolanor Aviation, just outside Montreal, is leasing 737s to an airline in Toronto needing replacement planes. Airlines looking to cover their schedules this summer and into the holiday season are pushing up short-term leasing rates, in particular for older Boeing 737s. Often airlines will lease the plane and crew to fly it, or they'll even pay another airline to fly their routes. Air Canada, for example, has hired Qatar Air to fly some of its routes. They are getting desperate. Yeah, for sure. In Health Matters tonight, too many B.C. families don't know the wishes of their loved ones when it comes to donating their organs. The parents of a young woman learned that recently when she lost her life in a car crash this summer. In the midst of their grief, they decided to donate her organs, only to find out that she'd already given her consent, allowing her liver, kidneys, islet cells and heart to be donated. Nadia Stewart has Madeline Strope's story. She was beautiful, she was sweet, she was kind. At just 23 years old, Madeline Stroop, or Maddie as her family called her, touched many lives. Her mom says it's no surprise she became a mental health worker. Because of her thoughtful nature and caring nature, she also um, did have depression at some times in her life. And so I think wanting to help others that suffer with the same things that she had was inspirational to her. Maddie was a bright light, gone too soon. She and her 22-year-old boyfriend Hayden Turcotte were traveling with another friend to the family cabin when the fatal collision happened on July 26th. The driver of the other car, a 70-year-old man, survived. Turcotte died at the scene, while Maddie died in hospital 10 days later. The crash is still under investigation as her family picks up the pieces. I feel like I'm doing this on behalf of Maddie. It's what she would have wanted. In her final days, they decided to donate her organs, but unbeknownst to them. When we talked to the doctors, and she had already filled out the form. It's a decision Maddie already made when she was still alive. They're taking heart in the gift their daughter has become to five other BC families. We hope that they will respond back to us because I would love to meet all of them. But the person who has a heart is a very, very lucky person. Maddie's parents are now encouraging others to register as donors. If there's others that we can help, then it's going to make us feel better and, and give this horrible, horrific incident at least a bit of purpose. Honoring the memory of their daughter. Nadia Stewart, Global News. A family of elephants in Malaysia finds itself trapped in a muddy pool. How they got out of the predicament coming up right after the forecast. 
But right before we check in with Christy at the PNE, the fair is more than just summer traditions. Fairgoers are also being asked to shape the future. That's right. In particular, how we all get around the lower mainland over the next 30 years. Here's Squire Barnes. One of the coolest things to look at during the PE is TransLink's map of Greater Vancouver and the Fraser Valley. But the purpose of this map is more than just to wow people. It gives a real clear picture over the transportation history here and how it's developed over several decades. Of course, for us, we're now planning toward 2050. That's our big consultation program. So the idea is to get people thinking about how we got to this point so they can then submit their ideas to how we can go further forward. And that's the idea of Transport 2050. It's TransLink asking all of us for input on what the future of moving people around the Lower Mainland should be. One really important thing, this isn't just transit, this is transport. So we want drivers to have their say, we want people who walk, we want cyclists. So this sets the transportation priorities over the next 30 years for the region. So we want big ideas, we want really bold ideas. Okay, so this is the ideas board, this is what you want people to do. Exactly, we want their ideas and we want their survey responses. So right now we've come up with an idea, it can go on the board. This idea will last forever. Free mouthwash bottles, the little ones, on transit so everyone has fresh breath. Now I'm not sure that one will be implemented, but the last time TransLink did this, a lot of the public's ideas were considered. The last time we did a, a long-range visioning exercise was in 1993 with the Transport 2021 plan. So all the SkyTrain lines that we see now, we're, we're in that plan. Uh, some of the bridges that we see, Golden Years Bridge, Seabus um, um, expansion was in that plan. Now what do you see? The PE stop for Transport 2050 is part of a process that will culminate in a final document by December of next year. So we'll be out again with, in the public in spring 20, 2020 to talk about what are the choices that we have and get people's uh, feedback on that as well. Okay, so you'll narrow it down a bit. Yes, we'll narrow it down. Well, the beast is down. Go over there. Looks pretty Check cool. it out. Not sure how Squire's hand washing thing will. No, that and the <laughs> and the mouthwash. Yeah, mouthwash. Mouth that's mouth what wash. it was. That's right. He would probably <laughs> ask for the hand washing thing too. Yeah. All right, let's head to the fair at the PNE where uh, Christy Gordon's standing by. Do you have a watermelon in your hand? What is that? I do. On? I wanted to show you this because they're actually going to be taking it to the show tonight. They're going to put it on one of the knight's head, and then the other knight will come by and slice it with a sword as it's going. They're going by. Incredible. So you can see the knights mounting the horses right now. They're called war horses, and these horses are over two thousand pounds. So pretty incredible. Let's talk about the weather. Have you guys noticed that the leaves are starting to turn brown on a few trees out there? I was a little shocked to see this. I actually took these photos myself. Oh my goodness. It is getting on in the season, but part of it is actually because of the drought that we're seeing across the south coast, in particular the lower mainland is very dry compared to the rest of the province at a normal level. Uh, so they are uh, sort of drought stressed is what they call, and you can see in terms of the amount of rain we've seen over the last three months, we're only at about 64%. It's not bad, but it is still pretty dry for some uh, species of uh, trees. Now, tomorrow we're going to see some rainfall across much of the province, but it's just touching into the lower mainland for the most part. We're going to be dry and that moisture will stay north of us, but we do have cloud in the forecast, whereas northern regions will see rainfall mainly in the morning, then it will shift to the south in the afternoon with rainfall. But for the lower mainland, cloudy skies, showers though if you're up towards Whistler Square, 
Squamish and over the Sunshine Coast. We're back to sunshine on Saturday, and then Sunday we're back to cloud cover. It's not until next week that we're back into real warm summer-like weather. So yeah, there they are heading off to their uh, their show. It has been really neat to get to know these horses and the nights over the last little bit. They have three shows a day, free for all everyone here at the Peony, and lots of fun. Okay, back to you guys. All right, and let's hope the watermelon gig goes well a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much, Christy. Should yes. be fun. Okay. Awesome. Back now to those trapped elephants in Malaysia. The five, including a little baby, were discovered on Tuesday, stuck in an abandoned mining pool for up to three days, about 200 kilometers east of Kuala Lumpur. Local indigenous people found the pachyderms and contacted forest rangers. An excavator was brought in and a path was dug out. The adults huddled around the baby as the noisy excavator dug out the path. But as it was made, it took a long time to get the animals to move to the opening. Finally, to the cheers of those watching, they all made it out to freedom. Quite orderly. Quite orderly. They need a good bath and some yes, clean water say. now. Trail uh, of peanuts got them out, apparently. Got them out, yeah. All right, Barry's here, and uh, yeah, everybody's kind of waiting to see when Brock's going to get signed. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel this is going to be uh, uh, one of those ones that drags on for too long. I think they, they know where things fit here. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Brock Besser may be uh, smiling a lot soon. A report from uh, the Vancouver province today says Besser's agent has an appetite for a four-year, $28 million deal, which may suit Jim Benning just fine. Besser is a restricted free agent, but that could be a number that both sides could live with. Besser is coming off a 26-goal, 56-point season last year. He did miss 13 games due to injury, but when healthy, he should be a lock in the 30-goal-per-season range, especially if he plays alongside Elias Pettersson. The Canucks would love to get Besser's deal done before training camp, which is just three weeks away in Victoria. All right, golf now. CP Canadian Women's Open defending champ Brooke Henderson trying to go back-to-back -back this year's uh, tournament in her home province of Ontario. Brooke uh, showing her touch here at the seventh. That's a great chip shot there to uh, lead to a tap-in birdie. And then at the ninth, she was very pleased with her putting today. Had a hot putter last year in Regina, and that led to the big victory. Third place after that uh, birdie, and then uh, she had all the shots today. Tough shot out of the deep bunker on the par five. Another birdie tap-in, now tied for the lead, and then Brooke will take the lead with another birdie putt. Six under 66, couldn't have asked for a better start. She is tied with fellow Canadian Anne Catherine Tangay. American Andy Park leads at seven under. This is Vancouver's Michelle Liu, still three months short of her 13th birthday, youngest golfer ever to play this tournament, qualified thanks to being top Canadian in the National Amateur. She did go 9 over 81, which is second last, but what an experience for the young lady who's not even a teenager yet, playing with the world's best at the CP Canadian Open. Tour Championship, top 30 players going for the $15 million Top FedEx Cup prize. Different format this year. Justin Thomas, top seed going in, so he starts at 10 under. Everyone else falls in behind him from 2 to 10 shots back, depending where they rank in the top 30. So you get credit for having a great year. Corey Connors, the only Canadian in the field, started 9 back, but 
Shot a two under 68. He is tied for 15th in the 30-man field. So well positioned. Thomas had the lead most of the day, but then dunks it into the water at 15, made a double bogey. Just even par for Thomas today, remains at 10 under, but the rest of the field did gain on him. Rory McIlroy, this is the toughest shot in golf from the fairway bunker. Look at that, almost holes out. He would make birdie. Rory is at nine under, just one off the lead. Thomas has company at the top. Brooks Kepka always plays well at the big tournaments. Birdie's 18 to get to minus 10. Sander Shoffley also 10 under. Three more rounds to go at the FedEx Cup, and it's anyone's game, and there is a lot of money up for grabs. Well, in a season uh, full of storm clouds, uh, Jordi Reyna has been a ray of sunshine for the Whitecaps. He's uh, scoring goals and leading by example, which wasn't necessarily a trait he was known for in his first two seasons in Vancouver. It's Reyna! Jordi Reyna has delivered another fine season for the Whitecaps. His five goals from open play lead the team, and he could have many more. Reyna has hit his fair share of goalposts and crossbars too, or he'd be into double-digit goals for the season. I need to improve a little bit in the finishing areas. Um, I think he could even have more assists or more goals, but uh, his work ethic, his diagonal runs, uh, the way he's always looking for space is something that, that is uh, a big characteristic in his game. Jordi Reyna is straight down the middle again. Reyna is just 24 and has always had that brash swagger from his native Peru, which is great when things are going well, but when it wasn't, it came through as pouting and reckless. But to his credit, he's cleaned up that part of his game, becoming a real example for the young Whitecaps on how to be a pro. When I first started playing with the first team, uh, when I would go talk to my academy coaches, they would tell me to try to replicate what Yordi was doing because he presses so well. So that was that was a big part of, of me learning how to press. Yordi was part of it because he presses so well. I like the way he holds the ball. I like the way he, he goes one-on-one. -on -one. And of course, he, he had the, the talent of scoring goals from outside of the box, which is uh, made me uh, uh, remind myself when, when I was his age. All right, show you this from last night. An amazing goal by LAFC's Carlos Vela, like he's on a soccer video game. you got to watch it again in slow-mo. Look at this. It's like the other guys were in on this, the Washington Generals. Like, are you kidding? Vela has 26 goals this season to lead MLS. The entire Whitecaps team has 27. That gives you an idea of the kind of year he's having. All right, little tennis here. Uh, good friends Dennis Shapovalov and Felix Ojealiasim will meet again in the first round of this year's U.S. Open. They did so last year in Felix's Grand Slam debut. Shapovalov won when Felix had to retire because of heart palpitations. Felix is the 18th seed this year in New York. Meanwhile, Milos Raonic, seeded 21st. Vashik Pospisil and Braden Schnur round out the men's side and, of course, on the women. Bianca Andreescu is the 15th seed, and Jeannie Bouchard will play, too. So lots of Canadians, and that starts Monday in New York. Exciting. Mm -hmm. All, All right. right. Thanks, Barry. Well, a trip to Disneyland is always special for any family, but for an Alberta family, it was an extra magical trip. That's right. The mom recently got to return to the Magic Kingdom thanks to a ticket she won 34 years ago as a teenager. And, of course, the story is going viral.
It was 1985 and Disneyland was celebrating its 30th anniversary when Tamia Richardson got in line. So when you went through this turnstile, um, depending on what your number was, if you were 30th or 300th or as the 30s went up, uh, you would receive a prize. Then 14, Richardson was thrilled to receive one complimentary return ticket to the park. I think I was pretty excited, yes. <laughs> I got to wear this pin all day around at Disneyland, so people didn't know whether I want a pass or a car or whatever. But yes, it was very exciting. Three decades later, she was planning a trip back with her daughters. I got it out and I thought I better bring it and see if we can, if we can get in. <laughs> it didn't have an expiry date. Why not, right? Why not try to see if we could use it? So she did. And it worked. The lady that went away with it and came back didn't say anything. The lady that was at the turnstile was very pleasant and just said, oh, have a wonderful day. And, you know, that's really exciting. Disney's public relations team quickly caught wind of the story. Some of the workers and they said, oh, you're that family from Canada. We saw you on Instagram. You know, we love the story. And the Richardsons went viral. They spent the rest of their trip doing interviews for the likes of People Magazine, CNN and USA Today, just to name a few. It was really cool, honestly. And when the media started going, we didn't know it would turn into something this big. Like, right? It's crazy. <laughs> the LA Times reported the pass had increased in value by 1100%. But for this family, this wasn't about saving a few bucks. It was about making their own special Disneyland memory. Disney magic, for sure. As my mom always would say, it doesn't hurt to ask. So like, all they're going to say is no. Margot Marin, Global News. Those ears look like just so natural on there. The, the ears, that's next level ears. Remember yeah. it just used to be <laughs> yeah. that black little ears? beanie and yeah. the black ears, but oh, that's next level. Well, it's 2019 mm -hmm. now. So. They take it up that's true. Now. Yeah. They are. Have you guys taken your kids to Disneyland? No, yeah, we're going to Disney World. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. For you, down in Orlando. Down in Orlando, big park down there. Let me say, yeah. Disney World, Disneyland is so, big. Disney World. Which is. one of them is the happiest place on earth, land or world? Hmm. Oh, I think they're tied. Yeah, they fight over that. Nothing but happiness. <laughs> we're happy to have done this program for you. Thanks for watching. Have a good night. Have a good night, all.